to the Travel Radio Podcast. I am your host, Megan Chapa, and I am privileged today to have David Weinsock on the program. Welcome, David. No, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to geeking out with castles. <laughs> I have never had a podcast guest say, let's geek out before, so I'm pretty excited about that. <laughs> Excellent. Now, before we get started and talking about what you do, to introduce the theme of castles, my daughter, Oriah, is on break, and she would like to read, or I should say, ask you a little joke. Love it. Why did the king, king leave, leave his castle to go to the dentist? Ooh, I don't know. Why do you leave his castle? To get his teeth crowned. <laughs> get his teeth oh, crowned. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I see what you did there. Well played. There are uh, lots of good castle jokes about portcullises and gates and all that kind of stuff, but I like the way you went. You caught me by surprise. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. David, I wanted to bring you on the podcast because you are a castle enthusiast, you're a historian, you know so much about these places, and so many people that listen to this podcast want to travel to the UK, and I think part of that is to see the castles. What is your experience about why this? Why does it have this allure? Why do people come to see these things? It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because castles, I think, um, stick out in just about everyone's mind as um, at least interesting places, um, places which uh, sort of prod the imagination uh, to a pretty significant extent. Um, kids seem to be enamored with them. I've met plenty of big kids which are enamored with them as well, as myself included. Um, there's no denying that castles hold a romantic appeal. I mean, when I say romantic, I mean that with kind of a capital R. Um, if you look back to the romantics, people like, you know, Byron, and in Scotland's case, um, people like Sir Walter Scott, um, they were writing about castles as places which were a part of romantic landscapes um, in which you could put yourself um, and imagine yourself being a part of ancient lore, um, being a part of something grander than yourself. And they almost imagined castles as being like a natural part of the landscape. Mm. Um, so there's something about especially a ruin and how it sits in a glen or on the edge of a lock um, that is contemplative, it inspires reflection, um, and it certainly gets you thinking about the grand stories that would have unfolded at these places. And I think stories is really the key here. Um, mm -hmm. People have been visiting castles as tourists for a long, long time, uh, hundreds of years, um, mostly on the back of stories. For instance, um, Shakespeare's Macbeth. Mm -hmm. uh, you had a lot of people coming to Cawdor Castle in the north of Scotland because Thane of Cawdor, Thane of Glams from Macbeth. Um, even though Cawdor Castle doesn't actually have any connections to the historical Macbeth, um, Victorians were flocking to it because they wanted to be in the place that Shakespeare wrote about. Um, in the same way that now, um, a lot of Outlander fans are visiting Scotland to see its castles because they want to see, ooh, Castle Leoch, um, you know, the main seat of, uh, you know, the main castle being used in the series. Mm -hmm. um, they want to go places which they've 
seen or heard about in stories because they feel like that forges a connection before you even get there. And it absolutely does. Um, so I think there's this kind of romantic appeal. There's wanting to go places that you've seen in pop culture to feel as though you're, you're a part of that storytelling tradition. And there's also, of course, sort of a personal aspect to it. Um, a lot of folks, especially from places like New Zealand, South Africa, the United States, places where in particular you tend to have large um, Scottish populations or mm-hmm. populations descended from the Scottish diaspora in the, in the 17th through 20th centuries. Um, a lot of folks want to, you know, track down their ancestral castle and the likes of that. Um, now, I hate to disappoint a lot of people. Um, your ancestors were probably peasants um, <laughs> rather than the folks living in the castle. But on the odd occasion, you might get, you know, a legit um, layered of a castle on your family tree. Um, so it, I think there's a, a lot of reasons why people come to castles. Um, personal, um, tying in with pop culture. Um, at the end of the day, these are places that evoke feelings. And one really good way to make the most of those feelings is to learn a story or two about these places as, before you go there. Um, so I don't mean, you know, reading all the history you possibly can, the names, the dates and all that. I mean, maybe just a quirky story or two about something that happened to that place so that when you arrive there, you've got a, a greater tangible connection to it, which has already been, you know, sort of pre-established a little bit yeah. uh, by other factors before you even arrive. Um, also, they're just cool. It's um, it's really fun to go into a ruined castle, and I've been known to bring the odd foam sword along and run around like you're a knight, stand <laughs> at the top of the castle, and you know shout <laughs> insults at the peasants like you know Monty Python French knight style. Um, they're just fun places. So those, I think, are, are some of the reasons why we continue to find these castles, which, let's be honest, are antiquated leftovers from a bygone age whose institutions are no longer really with us. Um, that's why we continue to breathe, breathe life into these places. Awesome. Awesome. Dave, would you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, and like the uh, sort of descriptor of enthusiast, you know, because it's definitely um, a case of enthusiasm uh, driving mm-hmm. me forward whenever I'm exploring these castles. Um, so, see, basics, I am currently 28 years old. I'm originally from Canada, uh, born in Nova Scotia in the East Coast. I uh, grew up for most of my life in the suburbs around Toronto, so the greater Toronto area. Um, but ever since I was a kid, always was really interested in history, and um, so I, I knew that was going to be a part of my life in mm-hmm. a pretty major way, just didn't quite know how. Um, and... Uh, came over to Scotland in 2011. Uh, that was officially to do a, a degree in international relations, a master's degree at the University of Edinburgh. Okay. Uh, but uh, that itself was kind of an excuse to just get me surrounded by lots of history in Scotland. Um, so I've always been fascinated with that kind of stuff. And what I do on a day-to-day basis now in Scotland um, is that I write for quite a few different publications, including the Scots Magazine. They're actually the oldest published magazine in the world. Wow. Uh, they were reporting on the Jacobite risings um, of Outlander fame, the risings of 1745 to 46, mm. while they were actually happening. Um, so it's really cool to be part of projects like that. Um, I also do quite a bit of presenting on YouTube, for instance. I work with a couple different channels, um, like Dig It, which is basically all about sharing Scotland's archaeology, history, and heritage with people all over the world, kind of what we're doing now in a certain sense. Um, so if it's history, I'm there, basically. Um, I also do quite 
quite a bit of uh, activity on social media where I use various channels like Twitter and live broadcasting through Periscope, again, just to take people around to cool historic sites and share a bit of Scotland story with people. Yeah, I have seen, that's how I found you was on Twitter, and I, I think I saw you or a reenactor in a knight's costume dancing around some castle ruin and... I just had a little chuckle and I had to watch and, and see more. And that's how I learned all about you. So your Actually, social yeah, media that, is working. That, that, <laughs> yeah, that, that would have been uh, at Durleton Castle, I believe, with Andrew Spratt. And if anyone is geekier about castles than I am, it's Andrew Spratt. He's uh, regularly found um, sort of traipsing around Durleton Castle in full plate armor and knight's kit. Um, he's an absolute delight. So that, that, that's the kind of fun thing you get to do over here. Nice. So uh, how did you get interested in exploring castles, and when did you decide this is going to be more than a hobby for me, and what was kind of like your first gig for this type of exploration? Yeah, I think the interest in castles um, is admittedly a bit of romantic interest in the sense that um, I see castles as places which uh, sort of prod the imagination and fire it up, um, where you can feel some sort of tangible connection to history and uh, sort of imagine that the stories and the lives of the people living there, sort of as you're going around, even if it is a ruin, I, I find castles can just be incredibly evocative. So there's always been that kind of emotional pull, which I think a lot of people can relate to. You know, why do you like castles? Because they're cool. Yeah. <laughs> It almost is as simple as that. Um, but I, I grew up with uh, a head full of Lord of the Rings and all that kind of stuff. Um, so uh, I always wanted to sort of make the, the fantastical and history to a great extent, because Tolkien was, after all, a historian and a mm -hmm. linguist. Yes, he uh, was. A, a, yeah, a part of my life. Um, and so castles really came into it because, well, let's face it, they're every kid's sort of epitome of the Middle Ages and... Mm -hmm. It's bashing each other with maces and lances. Um, <laughs> I was thinking swords. You went right for the mace. Hey, you know. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, the favorite weapon, like Robert Bruce, is the axe. I mean, uh, multifaceted, no muss, no fuss, but it gets the job done. Um, after all, Robert Bruce took down a, a knight who was much better equipped than him at the Battle of Bannockburn. With a, a other knight had a big, huge lance, full armor and everything. Bruce was basically just in his training kit with a wee axe took him down with sheer veracity. So I, I go for the axe as a little aside. Uh -huh. uh, but, uh, yeah, so ca castles um, really just hold this intrinsic appeal. And I, uh, when I first arrived in Scotland, again, back in what, September of 2011, um, I had gone on a, a couple of these little bus tours of Scotland as mm -hmm, you, mm -hmm. you first arrive in Scotland, you know, you find a company that takes you for a day or two out into the Highlands just to get a taster of it. Um, and I was just totally in love with the idea of exploring these places. After I'd been to around 10 or 12, I realized, you know what, this is something I'm really enjoying. I think I'd like to do more of this. And there are so many interesting places to go see. Um, maybe I could turn this into something. Mm -hmm. And I thought a good way to try to get other people sort of uh, a party to that enthusiasm that I hold is by coming up with some fun, quirky, hopefully catchy title, um, which I could use to bring people around. And so came up with this idea of the castle hunter. Um, I don't exactly know what was going through my mind. Maybe there's a bit of crocodile hunter in there. Or something. <laughs> but, you know, 
Who doesn't love a crocodile hunter? Shoot. Yeah, yeah. So it was that kind of thing. You know, I wanted to show that um, history is not just sort of stuffy people in suits sifting through archives. It's actually, in large part, people like myself going to these places and just sharing cool stories and getting people hooked. Um, That's the name of my game, is trying to get people hooked on history in the same way that I got hooked when I read about the Battle of the Plains of Pelennor in Lord of the Rings, Mm. or you name it. Um, So, yeah, that that was sort of when when I realized that there was something to this. Yeah, uh, so my uh, two guests ago, I was talking to a lady about her uh, she went to Greece and she basically said, if I had known about history in a hands-on type way, I would have done way better in school or would have remembered more because it would have been, you know, an experiential versus Absolutely. in a book. Yeah, well, and um, I will say that it's maybe skipping ahead a little bit, but um, there is a potential book in the works. I can't really uh-huh. say anything about that right now. It's okay. still Okay. Um, but when I do get my first book published, um, I'm dedicating it to Mr. Brown. Um, and Paul Brown was a, uh, history teacher at, uh, I went to Donald A. Wilson secondary school in Ontario. Um, he was the history teacher. Um, and what he did when it came time to learn about just about anything, but the example that sticks out in my mind is, um, the assassination of Archduke, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, um, Sarajevo, which kicked off the uh, first world war. Um, he didn't get us to memorize the names and the dates and the, you know, the route of the car that the Archduke was in. He got us to flip our desks over uh, to create kind of you know lines forming a street, crumple up a bunch of paper balls, and they hoisted one of the students up on a chair. And oh he my was the, gosh! You know, passing through the classroom, waving to everyone magnanimously. And uh, Paul Brown, uh, he was a Scot, and so he actually you know he would put on an accent a little bit. And he'd be like, "All right, the assassins are coming!" You know, and we'd all crumple up our paper balls and hurl them at the Archduke, and boom. And, you know, okay, that's not how it went, um, but it got people really excited. And so I give full credit to Mr. Brown for sort of keeping that flame of enthusiasm alive and igniting it in many other students. So, you know, so on point when you say that, uh, you know, teachers and uh, knowing history and engaging with history in a more accessible, hands-on way can really make all the difference. Yeah, I had a, this is so true. And so Gettysburg, um, my family's in Pennsylvania and we're from, um, more of the Revolutionary War historical area. But, you know, to Gettysburg, about an hour and a half, two hours to the west is where we had, you know, one of our most memorable or famous battles of the Civil War. And mm-hmm. I love the Civil War, uh, not the Civil War itself, but the history and learning about it because my history teacher, Mr. Smith, who might have been a little unhinged, but we finally took this, you know, we'd been preparing to take this trip by bus to Gettysburg. And there was probably like 200 middle school students. And he had us line up on Pickett's Charge, which, if you're not familiar, is this, I mean, open field where these men just lined up and basically they said, you know, charge. And it was just like a shootout. But he had us all line up and he had us all point our fingers and put them to our sides, and they yelled, bayonets, charge! And this guy, who was probably 65, just bolted out in front of all these middle school students with his finger in the air, and we just all whipped out our fingers and charged across the field after him. 
but I'll, I'll bet you felt pumped up in that moment you know yeah um that, that's exactly the kind of moment that i think can um set people off on a lifelong course yeah i mean i mean here i am i'm 37 i'm still i remember it and i and i can picture it vividly exactly where it happened so um okay so this is cool and so let's talk about learning history through exploring castles how many castles have you explored in Scotland, um, I have just been to my 335th castle. Holy cow. Uh, and later today, uh, as long as the weather holds, I'm going to be cycling probably about 50 miles or so um, around Perthshire in central Scotland, and I hope to add about four or five more to that tally. Now, if that sounds like a lot, 335, um, it's actually a drop in the bucket, um, depending on how you define castles, which is a, a very geeky debate you can get into. Ask 10 people, you'll get 10 different definitions, that kind of thing. Hmm. There are somewhere in the neighborhood of two to two and a half thousand castles in Scotland still standing to Holy some cow. extent. So, yeah, I've got my work cut out for me, uh, to say the least. Yeah, so, like, in five years, you can have them all done. <laughs> oh, if I keep going at the pace I'm at now, you know, I'd say maybe, uh, you know, maybe a decade or so. Oh, my and, gosh. Uh, I don't want you to get the wrong impression because a lot of these castles, you know, are not fantastically romantic keeps. You know, they are um, quite a few of them, you know, sort of crumbled block of masonry in an overgrown field and you're getting mm. stuck by nettles the whole time <laughs> so mm -hmm. they're, they're not all fairy tales is what i'm trying to say but quite a few of them are um so they come in all all shapes and sizes these castles so are you limited to scotland or are you you go everywhere I'm primarily focused on Scotland uh, because that's where I live. Scotland is home for me. Mm -hmm. um, and because I don't have a car, um, I do all my exploring by public transport and cycling. Um, it's just um, sort of sensible for me to stick to Scotland. And because Scotland's history is what I find most interesting, that's what I my niche tends to be. Mm. Um, but that said, um, there are fantastic castles all throughout Europe and even beyond Europe. You go to places like Japan and there's some extraordinary castles there mm. very different kind but incredibly interesting um haven't been to japan yet although it's very much on my list uh, but i have been to quite a few castles in the northeast of england um these are castles which were usually raided by the scots so it was interesting to see the shoe being on the other foot because i'm so used to oh this castle was burned like five times by the english and for once it was like oh the scots burned this one <laughs> Um, but, uh, I mean, I guess it's not funny to laugh at, like, we're burning things and people, and but... Yeah, when you think about the grim reality of it, I'm sure they weren't laughing very much, right? But with, with 700 years or so um, sort of perspective and time between us, I think we can see... We can laugh at it now? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, standing uh, off, or we're in Oxford, we have a guest room, and um, I know that you're a Tolkien fan, so we've got some of that history here. You can at least have a pint at the Eagle and Child, and then, then the Lamb and flag and um and oh. i believe that we have the um is it a cathedral and a castle that we got the white tower from the white yeah, house yeah yeah i've not been down to oxford yet actually but you're, you're making a very good case for why i should remedy that sooner rather than later yeah and we have uh we have oxford castle mm -hmm. yeah uh, with no, queen really matilda Right? Explore more of the Isles. Um, I've not even been to Wales yet, and Wales has some of the most impressive castles anywhere in the world. Mm. So All right. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, once you finish up Scotland, you know. <laughs> there we go. 
swing down south, south of the wall. Yeah. So tell us about, so for people who aren't familiar with castles or are just getting into, you know, the enthusiasm of exploring castles, what are some keywords, vocab words that people should know and what that means as far as when they're taking a tour, someone says, this is the keep, this is the X, Y, and Z. What, what are they looking at and what are some key, you know, the anatomy of a castle that they should be aware of? Yeah, totally. Um, well, one thing I guess to ask is what actually is a castle? Because you'll um, probably, if you're visiting anywhere in the UK, you'll be taking around to um, quite a few very different kinds of buildings, which might all be labeled castles. And you might find that very confusing because you'll look at one and think, oh, I thought this was a palace. And you'll look at another one and go, oh, that's just a teeny tiny tower. You could barely fit 10 people in there. Mm. Oh, that, that's just a you know an earth and mound with nothing even on it. How do you call all these things castles? Mm. So there's, again, no agreed upon precise definition of what a castle is. But generally speaking, it's a place which was built during the medieval period. Um, even then, there's some exceptions, but I'll try to stick to a fairly um, sort of broad definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're talking about anything built really from the late 11th century through until the 16th century. And after that, things start to get a bit more complicated. So sort of 11th through 16th centuries. And a castle is fundamentally two things. Um, It is a defensive site. So it needs to be able to pack, you know, a fair bit of a punch. Um, There's no standard measure for how tough a castle needs to be to be called a castle. Mm -hmm. But it needs to be able to at least scare a few guys off at the very least. Um, and it also needs to be a residence. That's one thing that a lot of people um, forget. Um, it's very easy to focus on the military side of castles because that's what you know compels most of our you know little daydreams about castles. You know, unless imagine- you want to be the princess. Well, unless you want to be a princess, yeah. in which case there are quite a few lovely castles, particularly in Scotland, I could recommend places like Craigivar, um, which is a pink horrolled castle in oh. the northeast. Um, you, you can just imagine Rapunzel's hair. Uh, <laughs> It's coming out the window easily. So it's got to be able to put up a fight, and it has to be the home of a laird. And laird in Scotland is a lord, so domestic and military. Um, So when you're going around a castle, have a look at whether or not it has an enclosure wall. Um, This is basically a wall, could be pretty much any size, um, which encloses an interior space. I know that sounds incredibly basic. You'd think what castle wouldn't have something like that. The answer is thousands of castles wouldn't have anything like that. It would just be a freestanding tower. So maybe look for a wall enclosing a courtyard. Um, and then you could look for what a lot of people consider to be the centerpiece of the castle, which is the keep. Um, now, there are a lot of different terms for this, but the keep is basically the main tower. Uh, there is an older word which is applied particularly in Scotland and France, which is called donjon, D-O-N-J-O-N. Mm. Um, and that's a main defensive tower, usually circular, but not always. Um, and that's where we get the word dungeon, because oh, there okay. would usually be a dungeon in the Don John. Um, so these words just get sort of corrupted over the centuries and, uh, you know, give us some new words. So you can look for your enclosure wall, you can look for your keep. Um, one way to tell if a castle is actually defensive or if it's just trying to look like it can put up a 
good fight. You know, a lot of castles, their bark is worse than their bite. Um, look for something, and this is probably my favorite castle terminology, called machicolations. <sighs> That's M-A-C-H-I-C-O-L. A-T-I-O-N-S, machicolations. Um, And these are gaps in the masonry at the top of a wall that could be used to actually drop all kinds of nasty stuff down on people attacking Mm. the castle. So if you stand at the foot of a wall, look up. You should see some corbels, which are almost like, uh, you know, they're stone um, extensions, which allow for a greater amount of defense at the top of the wall. And if there's gaps between that stonework, those are machicolations. And imagine looking up and then getting superheated sand poured down on you or mm-hmm. even water. Um, oil is the one that you see used in a lot of Hollywood films, although oil was incredibly expensive and tough to maintain. So that was actually the exception. Um, so if you see machicolations, chances are you're at a proper fighting castle. Uh, those all sound like horrible ways to meet an end, but uh, it sounds effective, so good to well, know. For that end um, is if you go through a gatehouse and look up when you're in the gatehouse and there's just a, a hole above you, that is called a murder hole, and you can uh-huh. guess what it's for. <laughs> yeah, I got it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they weren't messing around with their names. They knew what they were doing. Yeah, I mean, but... Uh, yeah, but to think about your castle being invaded, I mean, you're going to do what you have to do. I, I just, yeah. Yeah, so. And, I, and one thing you want is multiple layers of defense as well. It's no good if, you know, in all these Hollywood films, you see um, a castle being attacked and the attackers get through the first gate and that's it. They're in. The castle has fallen calamity. It's like, no, that was the first of five layers you've got mm. to get um, you know, if your castle only has one point where that you need to breach in order to take it, you have a terrible castle. Your castle. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. This is good to know. This is so thank you for being on the program already. Learning lots. This is exciting. Always good to be educational. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then in Scotland, which is where you know you primary primarily focus, um, I'm sure that there are like, you know, your top four, your top five popular castles to visit. Let's talk about those and then let's talk about some alternatives to people who have either been to Scotland or just want to go off the beaten path. Yeah. Um, God, I could do my top hundred castles easily depending on what mood I'm in. You know, it's like, God, oh, do I want to go more for uh, sort of the fancy palace type? Am I feeling more like a, a ruined tower on the edge of a windswept cliff? Mm-hmm. So there's castles for, for all tastes in Scotland, you might say. Um, but in terms of like a, a top five, which would give you a really good impression of the variety of castles in Scotland and also get you around to different corners of the country, um, I'd say definitely Stirling Castle. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and ideally, you'd come to Edinburgh Castle as well. But if you absolutely have to choose between one or the other, and apologies, Edinburgh Castle, I love you. Um, <laughs> but Stirling Castle is the way to go. Um, it was the most important castle from a strategic perspective in Scotland, bar none. Um, we know in, uh, if any of your uh, listeners are Game of Thrones fans, uh, there is the twins in Game of Thrones, the castle that the phrase control. And the whole idea there is that um, they control the only crossing of a major river. If you don't cross at their castle, you have to go hundreds of miles around in either direction and you're probably going to be long dead by the time you get to the other side. 
that Stirling Castle, it is the crucible of Scotland. Mm. If you control Stirling Castle, you effectively control Scotland. Um, that's why the Battle of Bannockburn with Robert Bruce against Edward II was fought in its shadow. That's why the Battle of Stirling Bridge, the famous one with William Wallace and Andrew de Murray, um, was fought right under its shadow. Um, it is a nation-defining castle. So I would say you can't come to Scotland and not go to Stirling Castle. It's simply a must-see. And it also makes for a pretty picture, which doesn't hurt. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Okay, yeah. what else you got? Now, a lot of people, when they come to Scotland, immediately go north into the Highlands. And as you should, Highlands are beautiful, but south actually has a lot of treasures as well. And one of my favorite castles is Caerlaverock. Uh, it's quite a well-known one. It's a triangular castle. Hmm. It's Britain's only triangular castle, and it has a moat. So it's, you know, classic what every kid would imagine if they were asked to picture a castle is pretty much what Calaveric is. Um, and there you get the story of a great siege which happened in 1300. It was around 75 Scots defending against around 4,000 English soldiers. Now, they lost, but they held out for two days um, against several direct assaults. And if you think about it, 75 Scots against 4,000 English soldiers, that is not great odds, to say the least. But it also goes to show you that, you know, they didn't immediately surrender. They thought, we might have a chance here. Mm. Um, so it's a bit of a testament to how strong castles could potentially be. Um, so if you want just a really cool-looking castle that you can explore around, it's got a moat in everything story of an epic siege collapse mm. is the way to go um, I would then encourage you to go west um, there is a, a whole variety of great castles built by the Norse Gales on the west coast and these were people who were the, the result of extensive Norse conquest and settlement throughout Scotland mm -hmm. and these Norse um, eventually intermarried and just basically became a part of local society um, with the, the Gales and so hence we call them the Norse Gales and they built some of the earliest castles in Scotland. So this is um, like Vikings, something like that? Yeah, so this is kind of where um, they, they arrived as Vikings, mm -hmm. uh, summer raiders, which is basically what Vikings mean. You know, So when we say Vikings, it's not actually a cultural group. Um, we don't say Vikings with a capital V, as in, you know, I am a Viking. I can broadly identify with all my other fellow, um, you know, oarsmen as Vikings in a cultural sense. No, Viking small v is just basically to go raiding, usually in the summer. So they showed up, they conquered, they raided, they pillaged monasteries, all that kind of stuff that Vikings do. Um, but then they settled. Um, and the Norse Gales are the result of centuries of that intermingling. Uh, they've got uh, a lot of really cool castles. The, one of the best is Duart Castle, D-U-A-R-T. Um, it's actually been reconstructed in the 20th century because mm. it was ruinous. Um, but uh, it is just spectacular. You get a ferry over to the Isle of Mull with mountains looming in the background. And the castle comes into view perched atop a cliff with the sea waves lashing mm. up. So it's one of those moments where, you know, your heart just stands still for a moment um, when, when you see it. Um, and it's got some great folklore. Every time a Maclean of Duart, and it is a castle belonging to Clan Maclean, yeah. um, is near death, apparently a headless horseman rides across the Dove Ard, which is the black point to the peninsula that the castle is on. Oh. Um, and that's an omen of of death. Um, so it's a bit spooky, that one as well. It sounds and a bit spooky. Yeah, well, there's tons of 
incredibly spooky castles in Scotland. Um, I don't believe in ghosts personally, but there's been a few times where I've definitely been moving a bit faster than I would otherwise. And uh, then I would say from there, um, if you want to go quite far into the north, um, few people make it up to places like Caithness and Sutherland, which is in the extreme north of the British mainland. Um, more and more people are going there now as a result of a driving route called the North Coast 500. Mm. Uh, on that route, you will find Castle Sinclair Gurnigo. Um, and that was built by the Sinclairs, who have all kinds of really interesting connections to the, like, the Templars, for instance. Oh. Uh, one of these families that a lot of strange stories swirl around. And it's one of the most powerful castles in the north of Scotland. Again, it's right on the sea, so you've got the combination of elements. The wind is usually gusting across as well. Um, and it's just, it's a great major castle to explore, but one which is totally off the main tourist trail so you've usually got it more or less to yourself which is always a nice experience um and i suppose to round it off coming down into uh somewhere like aberdeenshire where you've got a ton of castles there's actually a castle trail there um i would say go somewhere like drum castle and that's just simply d-r-u-m Um, that's been inhabited by the Irvin family for 700 years. So it's probably the castle in Scotland that has the longest continual occupation by a single family. Um, and it's a masterclass in the evolution of castles because you've got a 13th century keep, you know, the main tower, which mm-hmm. is built out of more rough-hewn masonry. You can tell, you know, it, it's meant for a fight and it's from an earlier era just from looking at it. But attached to it is, I believe, a 16th or 17th century um, sort of chateau, more of a domestic house. Um, so you've got both combined in one. So it's a great little sort of mini course in how castles evolve over time. So if you, if you do those five, you're going to quite a few different regions in Scotland and getting a pretty good flavor for the different kinds of castles in the country. Now, what about like the most off-the-beaten-path Someone that likes to explore something that's not restored, it's like, you know, for, like, I used to do this with abandoned houses in high school, which is really dumb, like, with a grappling hook, because we have some, where my parents are, where my parents live, we had some, you know, old abandoned stone estates um, that have now been bulldozed, and, um, and, like, cults had gotten into them, and they were, like, really creepy, and there were altars and all kinds of crazy stuff inside. Goodness, yeah. Yeah, so dumb move on my part, but that's what you do when you're a teenager. So, like, you know, grappling hook through through a a window. Yeah, and, like, climb up inside kind of a story. Um, So, anyway, but that was, like, you know, hair raised on the back of your neck, and and we did that for funsies. So, without violating someone's property (laughs) rights, as I've stupidly done. What would you tell someone to explore? And now we're really talking my language because my my bread and butter are these hidden away, really interesting, but lesser known places. Um, One thing on access is that um, if a castle is like right in someone's backyard, say like on a farm or something, then it's always a good idea to get permission beforehand. That Mm -hmm. said, in Scotland, we do have something called the right to roam. Now, it it doesn't mean that you can just go absolutely anywhere you want without any consequences, but what it does 
does mean is that there is a far greater emphasis than pretty much anywhere else in the world that I'm aware of um, on public access. So the number of times where I've been castle hunting, as I like to call it, um, and I've seen a ruined castle, but it's, you know, behind a fence in the middle of a field and my North American brain kicks in and go, ah, dang, you know, I can't go to that one. It's on someone's land. Mm -hmm. I then go, wait a minute. Would I be trampling any crops to get there? No, it's just a field. Um, I'm not going through a construction site, so there's no actual physical danger. Okay. Um, the right to roam will usually give you the right to go see that. Um, so it's pretty much the case that if you can get to it, you are allowed to go there. Now, I don't want to overemphasize that because there are some restrictions. So do look into uh, the countryside access code if you are going to be exploring. Um, but generally, access is very, very easy in Scotland as compared with a lot of other places. So just keep that in mind as a, as a nice little perk. Wow, that's like mind-blowing to me. I'm like, okay, someone's going to be racking a shotgun because you're <laughs> on, you know, get off my field, you don't need dang kids or something. But Our maggot's going to come with his pitchfork and his hound and chase the hog <laughs> out the field. Yeah, yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> Um, and in my experience, I have been sort of um, yelled off uh, a castle or two, um, but for the vast majority, I mean like 99% of the places I've been to, um, even just as a matter of courtesy, you go up on no and knock on the nearest door to the castle because the castle is usually going to be on that person's land. Uh -huh. And you, you say, hi, you know, I'm a geek. I like castles. I heard there was a castle here. Is it cool if I go check it out? vast majority of times, they're not just going to say yes, they're going to say, oh, yeah, and let me tell you this story about it. And, you know, people oh, that's are wonderful. on sharing this stuff, which is which is fantastic. Um, so all, to that end, um, one of my favorite lesser known castles is a place called Yester Castle in uh, East Lothian. And it's not too, too far from Edinburgh. Um, you do probably need a car to get to it, although I've cycled to it from the nearest train station, which is about 20 miles away. So um, cycling, good, if you can, you know, sort of hack a reasonable distance. Um, the reason I like Yester Castle so much is because it is one of these hair-raising places that, you know, it, I don't know how they've not shot a horror film there yet. Yeah. Some one needs to. Um, it was built in the um, late 12th or early 13th century by a man named the Wizard of Yester, who was alleged to be a wizard and a necromancer. He raised oh. dead. Um, and so one part of the castle is the Goblin Haw or the Goblin Hall, because it's alleged that he raised a legion of goblins to build this castle for him. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this is horror film worthy, and I do have some working film people that listen, so maybe you're going to plant some seeds. Well, you know, given all the places I've been to, more than happy to point folks in the right direction if they need a castle to suit their needs. Um, because it, even accessing it is really cool. You have to walk for about 15, 20 minutes through some forest. Um, it, it, there are paths. It's not like you're just scrambling through. Um, but you arrive at this ruin, which is so much more substantial than it first appears. It's like Transformers, you know, there's more than meets the eye. Um, because you first see just a few crumbled pieces of masonry and go, oh, there's not much to this. But then you start to see more and more and you realize you're in the middle of this massive castle complex with remains of a tower looming about four stories over you. Mm. But it's actually below the ground, a little bit like an iceberg. Most of it is actually below the ground. Um, you have to go 
to the side of this hill and there's a hidden passage which you kind of have to duck down into and it gets pitch black you're going through this tiny corridor on you know subterranean corridor um for probably 30 40 yards and you emerge into the goblin hall and it's got this incredibly imposing rib vaulting in the ceiling and it's just this menacing space and then you look in the corner of the room and you're already pretty much in the pitch blackness and you see another staircase going further down that is super creepsville but i would totally do it and oh absolutely um and so you go down this stair and it's blocked by rubble about 20, 25 steps down. The reason it's blocked by rubble is because the locals um, deliberately blocked it up because it was alleged to be a hell mouth, a place where you could access hell. Um, so you get down to the bottom of that stair. You look back up and you can see a little bit of light coming from the top of the stair from the goblin hall. And it was one of these moments where I looked up and I was sure that there was going to be a shadow blocking my huh. way up. And I was like, yeah, you know, I deserve to die here. I, um, I went into a place called, you know, the Goblin Hall, descended this staircase to a hellmouth. Yeah, if anyone's ever deserved it, <laughs> fair enough. Wow. So, so for sheer hair-raisingness, you really can't beat Yester Castle. Holy cow. Um, okay, one, that's frightening. Second, um, do the locals still have this folklore about it, or are they kind of like... Ah, we're the 20th century now, and we know that that was just some good it's, stories. It's amazing how a lot of these stories linger. Um, one thing you'll find, a lot of these towers, whether they're ruinous or not, um, you'll find that there's really not even that much graffiti in some of the basic things you might expect. Um, even quite urban castles um, tend to be in pretty good nick. Um, you might find a, the odd broken bottle in a basement vault somewhere or something like that. But overall, I think there's a, a general appreciation that these are places worth valuing and preserving. So even if people don't necessarily think that there are still ghosts kicking around, and for the record, quite a few people do think that, um, they at least value these places for their historical integrity, which is really encouraging. Yeah, that's, I really like to hear that. And I think, and I've experienced that to a large degree here in, in England also, in the sense that here historical places are not vandalized. They're not tagged by graffiti artists. I mean, mm-hmm. like in town, we have some petty crimes, like they steal bicycles and bike seats and things like that, but there's not a lot of graffiti. Whereas, you know, when I made the crack earlier about hearing a farmer rack his shotgun, it's because I feel like we have a graffiti problem in the States or like a vandalism problem for fun. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like I'm glad to hear that these things are preserved and that the culture appreciates the history. So that's good. Well, I heard a, uh, a really interesting story. Um, it was just last year, I think. There's a, a castle in the south of Edinburgh called Craigmiller Castle. Um, it was pretty much unknown until a couple of years ago um, for no good reason because it's an extraordinary place to visit. It's one of my favorite castles in the country. Um, Mary Queen of Scots spent quite a bit of time there. Um, they've done Outlander filming there and filming for The Outlaw King, the upcoming film with Chris Pine um, about Robert Bruce. So mm. it's good increasingly on the tourist trail but um, I heard the story about um, a couple kids who were going to go up to Craig Miller Castle 
and vandalize it. They had brought some spray paint and everything. Um, and then they were intercepted by another group of local kids who stopped them from doing that. That's amazing. And when I heard about that, I was like, first of all, modern siege. That's kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, the sort of mischievous part of me thought, oh, that's kind of neat. Um, but, in, you know, really, I, I was incredibly touched by that because, you know, we often think of, you know, teenagers especially as not being particularly reverent towards these things. But clearly that's a wrongful stereotype because there was a significant number of kids who were willing to take the time and potentially put themselves in a bit of danger even to stop this historical monument from being defaced. And I just thought that was just heartwarming. Yeah, it is heartwarming. I want to give them some kind of like historical medal preservationist metal like yeah. i don't know if they've been identified but if anyone knows who they are then um there's actually a um uh, an award called the heritage angels awards and mm. they're, they're usually more towards sort of conservation groups but i would love to see someone like that get um something like a heritage angel award i agree that sounds like the perfect award for that i would mm, that sounds great um now let's talk about uh well sorry is there anything else you want to mention well, yeah, I mean, I really only did get one castle there. It's so easy to get off on a tangent about them, isn't there? Um, there's a, another one uh, on the West Coast called Gylan Castle. It's on a little island called Carora. Um, if you go to the port town of Oban, O-B-A-N, that's where you get most of the ferries out to the Outer Hebrides and the, and the isles like Isla and Jura. Um, and um, all you have to do is drive about two miles south of Oban, take a ferry which takes literally three minutes to go across the little waterway to the Isle of Carora. And it's about a 45-minute walk to the south end of the island to Gylen Castle, G-Y-L-E-N. It's a 16th century tower built by the MacDougalls, who were the um, powerful family in the area from, oh, I think, the 12th century. And um, it's just one of these places where you're walking along a beautiful path surrounded by elemental West Coast scenery, sheep grazing in the fields, you know, all these little hillocks creating this kind of magical topography. And you round a bend and see this, like, pencil-thin, precipitous tower mm. standing on the edge of a cliff. And it's one of those moments that just makes you feel like you are straight up in Westeros. You know, there's no other way to describe it. Um, so that is just a wee ruin. You know, there's not all that much to actually explore. Um, but you could spend hours just admiring that tower. Um, so Gylan is another one that I definitely recommend people check out. Um, there are literally hundreds of, of examples of places like this. Um, so I do regularly post um, all the castles I, I visit on Twitter and stuff. So if anyone's wanting a lot of inspiration that might be a, a good way to go yeah well let's segue into how people can find you yeah, um, so I do have a website. It's very much in the works. Um, I've been saying that for about a year now, though, so um, it's really becoming more of an excuse than anything. It's castlehunter.scot. Um, so Scotland does have its own domain name. It's just .scot, castlehunter.scot. Um, so I think I've got around 160 castles up right now. Um, 
pretty much just pictures at the moment. I've not had time yet to do historical write-ups for most of them, although some of the major ones I've done historical write-ups for. And that just gives you an idea of the kind of stuff I get up to as well, my various writing projects and presenting and all that sort of stuff. Um, so that's one way to find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at the Castle Hunter. Um, Instagram, pretty sure it's the underscore Castle Hunter. And I'm also on Periscope, the live broadcasting platform. Um, and that's kind of my favorite one because that allows me to actually take people from all over the world around castles and other historic sites. I don't just do castles. I do battlefields and stone circles and cairns and historic villages and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's a great way to sort of travel from your couch. Um, so as long as there's signal, I can usually do a Periscope video live from these places. So that's a great way to experience them. Um, in terms of resources, though, for castles in Scotland anyway, there are tons. Um, I use a couple different websites when I'm planning my castle trips. Um, one of them is stravaging.com, um, which uh, stravaging is a word which in Scots basically means like you're wandering, which is just with the intention to wander. You know, like, oh, those hills look pretty. I'm going to go stravaging. I'm not going to anywhere in particular. I'm just walking for the sheer sort of pleasure and aloofness of it. Um, so that's a really good resource with a map of thousands of castles, both intact ones, um, right down to ones where it's like a supermarket car park, but there used to be a castle there. <laughs> so that's a really good resource. Um, Canmore is a national database, um, C-A-N-M-O-R-E. And they have archaeological and historical records for pretty much every historic site in Scotland. Um, so oh, that's wow. a really good resource. Um, and then generally, I mean, Visit Scotland and Historic Environment Scotland, which are two of the major um, sort of heritage and tourism organizations have a lot of information on their websites too. Um, but typically I find if I'm going castle hunting, I'll combine Stravaging with Canmore and then I've got OS maps, Ordnance Survey maps as well. Um, and they're great for identifying pretty much all the places of historic interest in an area, giving you detailed maps of all the paths and roads in the area so you can um, get around easily. So those are the resources I sort of pool together when I'm planning my castle hunts. So how often do you get lost? <laughs> More often than I like to admit, definitely. <laughs> I've got no shame. I, I you know, make fun of the fact that I get lost. The number of times where I've, I've, you know, looked at a map and thought, oh, that looks like a solid little path. And then it ends up just petering out. And I find myself in the middle of a field of nettles or a cornfield. And all of a sudden, I'm, you know, lifting my bike up over my head um, and going, what on earth have I got myself into? Um, so, yeah, get lost quite frequently. Um, good news is there's usually a historic site, you know, within a stone's throw of wherever you are. So even if you get lost, there's still usually something cool in the area. Um, but I've gotten a lot better with that recently. I used to just be slightly mad and um, I had my, you know, my flip, I had a flip phone up until 2015. <laughs> Those things are pretty much immortal, um, but they don't come with, you know, the mapping capacity and all that kind of stuff. And you can't uh, tweet from them and, you know, God forbid you'd be separated from social media for a couple hours, right? Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, now that I'm using all these maps like Canmore and OS, um, I get lost less often, but still enough that I'm double and triple checking my maps anytime I go out. One thing I wanted to ask you about, because I was looking at your pictures of Edinburgh Castle on Twitter, you said, look, Edinburgh Castle does disappear into the hashtag har. What is <laughs> yeah. the har? 
oh, the, the horror is this um, magical thing where um, mist effectively develops on the Firth of Forth, um, which, in addition to being a tongue twister, is the name of the body of water to the north and immediate east of Edinburgh. Um, if you follow the Firth of Forth far enough to the west, it becomes the River Forth, and the mm. River Forth is the river over which the Battle of Stirling Bridge was fought. So it's a very historically significant body of water, um, but it's kind of a microclimate in that um, the you know, so weather conditions tend to sort of pool in the Firth of Forth, and the har is this thick mist which then spills out from the water onto the land um, and it can blanket the shores of the Firth of Forth to such an extent that even in the middle of Edinburgh sometimes, which is about two and a half miles from the shore, it feels like, I don't know if you've played the video game Silent Hill, um, where it's all mist all around you and sort of beasts can emerge at any moment, like mm. 20 front of you that's how it feels um you can literally sometimes not see to the next lamp post on the street wow uh, and har is an old scandinavian word um so it's this quite uh, dramatic weather phenomenon um which is particular to this area um it does happen uh, throughout the north sea as well but edinburgh is particularly known for it um and that's what blanketed the castle um the other day and so you know you've got this huge castle on a massive cliff um one of the most unmistakable skylines of any city in the world and it just completely vanishes when the horror rolls in. Um, you can't even see the tops of buildings that are three or four stories high sometimes because the horror is so thick. Um, and even yesterday, I was on a train heading over to Fife, uh, the land on the other side of the Firth of Forth. So say that five times fast if you want a tongue twister to cross the Firth of Forth. Uh, sorry, to get to Fife, you got to cross the Firth of Forth. Um, the horror was just still settled in the over the water so i was on the train maybe a hundred yards from the edge of the water and where the train was was perfectly clear but then as soon as you hit the water it was just this void mm. and felt really uncanny so that's the horror i think i want to experience the horror but then maybe never again it sounds scary <laughs> it's one of those things that gives you a spook but you're also going around kind of in a dreamland and um it, it's very much inspired writers over the years i mean robert louis stevenson um was incredibly inspired by edinburgh and its environs uh dr jekyll and mr hyde are oh. basically um a combination of deacon brody a real guy um and edinburgh itself with the so-called sort of barbaric medieval gothic old town with the enlightened civilized new town two sides of the same coin um and the horror has inspired guys like ian rankin um writing his detective mm. reeks novels which are very sort of yeah gritty noir um sort of detective thrillers so the horror and the weather of edinburgh has very much found its way into popular culture for good reason well, David, that is good to know. I'd like to experience. And that's the end of my formal questions for you. Is there anything that I'm missing, anything you want to point out, anything that's coming up for you in the future that you want to talk about before we close out the podcast? 
Yeah, um, I did mention, uh, I think before we started up there, that I do have a book project in mm. the works. Um, mm-hmm. I, at this point, unfortunately, can't say anything else about it, but okay. let's just say it is going to be geeky in the extreme. Uh, <laughs> so if you like seeing how history is echoed in fiction, then it's going to be very much up your street, and I'll leave it at that. Um, but another project that I'm working on long-term is... Another book. I'll get the first one out of the way, out of the way first. Um, but another book eventually years down the line on Scottish castles and, um, particularly highlighting the lesser known places, um, the places like Yester and Gylan, um, and taking a good geographical spread and a spread over the eras. So covering sort of all the eras of castle building in Scotland along with all areas of Scotland. Um, so that's coming up and uh, I've got a video series which is going to be filmed this year, um, thanks to to grants from the Castle Studies Trust, which is allowing uh, Digit, an organization I work with that is um, a part of the Society of Antiquaries of Scotland. Um, we're going to be going out to about 10 castles in central and southern Scotland and shooting YouTube videos at them. Um, and these are going to include some really quirky places. We were looking at doing Yester Castle, but unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be going there. But lots of other amazing places. Um, so if you head on to YouTube and look Look up Digit TV. Um, should be relatively easy to find. So, and there's a lot of videos up there um, from historic sites all over Scotland, including museums, castles, battlefields, you name it. Um, so that's one of the things in the works. Uh, lots of little projects on the go, articles and the like, um, but that's sort of the main horizon right now. Great. Well, when those books are ready to come out, you give me a little ring and we'll talk about them so we can give them uh, you know, their due justice and talk about how exciting they are. So that'd be great to talk about in the future. Totally. Thanks. All right. Well, this is Megan Chapa of the Travel Radio Podcast thanking David Weinzach and saying good night.